so much great Advertising Week content, so little time. Snackable AI is now helping you navigate podcasts like this one, event sessions, and other content with chapters, topic tags, and more. Find the insights that matter to you faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is a lead player in one of the most interesting spaces in our industry, the rise of the niche provider in a major category. I'm going to come back, Rick, and talk a lot about what you're doing now as SVP at Thimble, which is disrupting the whole insurance space with a particular focus on small and medium-sized businesses and is growing like absolute gangbusters. But you've got a really interesting story, young man. And <laughs> I want to dive into that. And our crack great minds research team, as always, has come through with all sorts of little gems and jewels. And I'd love to go back, give or take almost 15 years, and go back to the work that you did working around development of an intranet portal and doing some live experiential events for a little company as an intern. And I started my career as an intern also. So I have a great passion and affinity for stories that begin with an internship. So Rick and I'd love to start with your internship at Apple way back when. Well, Matt, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Uh, That goes way back. I interned at a number of of companies in college, uh, Comedy Central, the Special Olympics. But yeah, I ended up interning at Apple as well. I was in global retail marketing department. I found my way there kind of through a leap of faith. Uh, I was actually working at the retail store at a local mall just throughout college, just making ends meet and enjoying selling at that time iPods. There were no iPhones. So I know you called me young man and if for anyone visualizing me, I, I do have white hair and, and little kids and stuff as well. But uh, but yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, when I was at Apple, I, I you know I was I was working at the retail store, and then I just said I, I got to do something to put myself on the marketing path, which was my major. And I saw an opening for the global retail team at corporate out in Cupertino. I applied. They said you're the only person who worked at a retail store that applied for a job at corporate and. I was like, oh, great. And they said, well, we love that. So come on board. And obviously, you know, it was well worth it. So I went there for three months to Cupertino. Um, And one of the interesting projects there, even though it was in the marketing division, was every store would host classes, right? So like your local store, for us, we're in New York. So whether it's the Soho store or the one in the Oculus, et cetera, downtown, they, they host classes, and each store has to organize it. So it could be like a class on iMovie or GarageBand, or it could be a big event like Spike Lee when I was there was coming to the Soho store or the Nike shoe had come out that had a little Apple gadget inside and we were organizing runs. But no store, there wasn't a centralized way for these stores to, to request assets to say to corporate that we're having this event and so I actually started working with a little product team. And that was my that was my summer internship project was work with this product team and build this portal for use by the store managers to schedule, book, coordinate these events. And 
you know, the good thing about it, obviously being at Apple, Steve Jobs is still CEO and I got to hear him speak and saw him in Cafe Mac, all that good stuff. Um, but the good thing about that experience specifically was I really fell in love with product and marketing and this idea that marketing can influence how something is built and work with UX design and all that other stuff. And, 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 and at that time, be kind of digital and online first type marketing. And so I think that was pretty formative in, in what I've looked for from that small company, Apple. And just from that short tenure, did you have a feel then that you were at a place that was going to have enormous impact. It was, you know, Apple was a successful company, certainly in those days, but as you referenced, it was pre-iPhone and pre a lot of other stuff. Do you have any gut remembrances of that period or are you as surprised as anybody what's happened? I mean, Apple was still huge at that point. The, the retail footprint was huge. When I worked there, iPods were still flying off shelves and our, our holiday seasons were insane. There was still all of that, you know, gravity and magnetism about Apple in existence. I think it, it definitely changed significantly. And I later found out my roommate the entire time was working on the iPhone as his project and it only would come out the next year. So, you know, it wasn't sure, it wasn't too far before that. I think for me though, I've, I think I've loved New York and uh, I wanted to come back to the East Coast. And I think I also wanted to kind of get in a world where I felt more ownership eventually and, you know, kind of took on a different role building something at a startup. And I just didn't see that. And also at the time, you know, nowadays you'd keep internships going even after you graduate, right? Those days you didn't, the job opportunities came and so full-time opportunity came back in New York. And I, I, I grasped that pretty quickly as well. So you, uh, you referenced an opportunity to come back to New York. Was that the gig that you had at the iconic New York Post going in a completely different direction? Yeah. I ended up at News Corp and New York Post, and I was doing very specifically digital marketing and, and business development. And so I did that for about two years. The, the interesting thing about that experience I think it was, it was two things. One, just learning about how the internet and this media company is going to work. And part of that underpinning it was advertising. I managed remnant network advertising. And so monetizing all the inventory that the sales team couldn't sell, brokered those deals. And my boss had a great approach. Like every quarter, we're just going to take a different part of the site and figure out the partnerships we need to put in place to make sure that the revenue per page visit was as best as possible. And I love that kind of this is the goal for the quarter. That's what we're going to do. We're going to optimize the heck out of it. And after the whole year is done, you, you've kind of done a lot of impact. And then the other thing I loved about it was really, it was, it was early days. And I went to my VP at the time and I said, hey, we don't have a Twitter account. Can we start a Twitter account? And she said, yeah, sure. I was like, well, do you want to do it? Like, who should I get to do it? And she just said, you, you do it. Um, and so I actually logged into Twitter and got twitter.com slash NY post. And then it was so much fun because all the editors loved the idea of having their own account. So then we had to create social media guidelines on how to use Twitter. And we had to create NY post Yankees, NY post Mets and all these different things. And, you know, that was one claim to fame of starting that, that Twitter account for the post, but I really fell in love with social. I thought it was going to be on a wave and, you know, that led me to realize I've been at Apple and I've been at News Corp. These companies are nothing alike. 
I don't know what I want. And that's actually what took me to agency side early on in the career after that. And so I went agency side, but was very much focused on social and digital and social marketing there. And, you know, kind of felt like I was in the right place there as, as Facebook, Twitter, and all these companies were kind of just establishing what they were going to do on social media. And you had a, a great run and a, he's one of my good pals, my friend, Richard Edelman, but you uh, had a great run at Edelman. I think, didn't you work a lot on the Samsung business there? Yeah, I was at Edelman Digital, which was kind of the digital practice of this large PR agency. Uh, and at first I did business development, just pitched every new client on how, to, how we can you know, impact their social presence. And then I managed uh, Unilever Dove Men for about a year. Unilever was launching Dove Men. And then when Edelman won Samsung Mobile, that kind of hook back to Apple brought me there. And I, I was you know, very vocal about, I really want something that I felt was closer to tech. For anyone listening, like New York did not have a big tech scene at this time. Like it wasn't the type of startup and VC environment that exists in New York today that existed then. And at that time, you know, it only really existed on the West Coast even. So media and agencies were where we, we kind of, you know, cut our teeth in marketing, but I really wanted to get back to tech in some way. I think I always knew I wanted to get back to something more tech. So Samsung was part of that. And it was the glory days of the Galaxy versus iPhone wars. And we were doing a, a ton of marketing, launching every new product. And you can see that narrative starting to emerge, Rick, and you talked about you know, seeing at Apple that marriage of, you know, product and marketing. And when you follow your pathway forward at companies like Foursquare, the work that you did, part of the Vice family, you can really see those things starting to gel together. Sounds like that was almost a, a conscious plan and or an affinity that you were able to sort of manifest for your own career and moving from one gig to another. Yeah, I think, I think something I realized was that marketing is very multidisciplinary and it was becoming increasingly so. There's just so many different types of marketing. Uh, there's brand marketing, which agency side gave me exposure to. There's kind of the more traditional advertising, right, which New York Post was giving me exposure to. Even at Foursquare, we were building ad tech products, you know, so really speaking the marketing metrics of CPM and CPCs and things like that, that you need to know. And then there's the product side of marketing and the more technical side of whether it's web development or making an actual kind of digital product. So, you know, by the time I joined Foursquare, Foursquare was an amazing place. I was mainly doing product marketing there and that kind of learning that side of what is product marketing for B2B products. By that time, I think I became pretty well-rounded and felt like I had connected all these dots, right? Like I would jump around, but really want to change a role and change of scenery all within marketing, but kind of exploring all these different things. And by the time I ended at Foursquare, I, I felt like I had a good position. Now is my own risk and a risk of the company to take a leap of faith with me and, and try to own a marketing department and function and a, at a startup. And again, by this time, startups existed in New York and there's a lot of excitement going on. And, and so that's what led me to, you know, after Foursquare joining a company called Social Bicycles, which then became Jump. And since then, I've really kind of 
felt really comfortable building a marketing team from scratch. Um, and we can go into that, but. Before we jump to jump, hang on one second now. So academically, we share something. I was also, one of my majors was sociology also. And I know you were sociology and marketing. Yeah. You're not an engineer. You don't have an engineering background, but you seem to have a real proclivity for this intersection of product marketing, you know, design, all those areas sort of crashing together. How has it been for you? Often the people in control of so many of these companies are engineers who I find don't always get marketing. Have you had to work harder row upstream being a, a, a rising player now rising really up to the top, but in companies that are largely engineering dominated, their founders and or key decision makers, you're a marketing guy. That's a different orientation. It's a really good question. I think uh, the most interesting thing is that you got to enjoy it. So you have to enjoy the product that's being created. If you, if you don't enjoy the product that you're marketing, selling, et cetera, you know, then there's no point, go switch. But I always enjoyed this idea of software impacting behavior and how, you know, how we use the world, right? And how, how we interact with the world. It's funny that you brought up sociology. I really think I learned more about marketing in my sociology studies than I did in my marketing studies. Because by the time you leave college with all that marketing studies, you basically learn the four Ps and a couple of cool case studies, but it's really hard to apply that in, in everything that's changing ever since, you know, ever since I've been kind of actually practicing marketing. So I love sociology. I always love that creative side and I love the products. So, and, you know, my father was a computer programmer. So I've always felt very comfortable around programmers. I've just made sure that I keep myself occupied even in free time. My favorite question to ask someone when I interview is what do you do in your free time? And sometimes I'll get, I like to go to restaurants and things like that. And then once in a while you'll get this, oh, well, I'm working on this side project and it's got nothing to do with my job, but this is what it is. And I love those people because those people are the ones who are challenging themselves. And so, and I see a little bit of myself in there. I've learned HTML, CSS, JavaScript, not, not enough to ever want to be an engineer, but enough to be in the same room with them and understand what's possible and kind of how to speak to them. So product kind of has to be in your DNA, I guess. And it, I, I guess it's in mine. But the challenge as a marketer then is, is not just the product person, but it's just the business as a whole. You have to translate CPMs and CPCs and, you know, impression share metrics, these really, what we think is quant, CEO is never thinking about that metric. I mean, just so rarely in a board meeting does that ever come up. And so you have to translate how the marketing metrics work as business metrics and go upstream in that sense. And I think if you understand that impact and can quantify it through data, you you really start to have that impact. You have that seat at that table. It was very difficult. We'll talk about Uber, I'm sure, but it was very difficult to do at Uber. It's a very operations-led company. Um, you know, marketing wasn't centralized there for a long time. And so, you know, I learned a lot about that there. But I, I guarantee once you're able to do that, you can also educate your team a lot more and make sure that all of them are, are kind of moving the boat in the right direction if they understand kind of a business metric more. But yeah, it's a really, really great question. Yeah, well, it's interesting because you, you see the ingredients for what is really a prescription, if you will, for the modern day CMO. 
where you've got that familiarity uh, with the engineering side, but at your core, product marketing and sociology, which I agree with you, completely underrated because it gives you real insights into understanding people and behavior. And uh, it doesn't get enough respect. I think it's the Rodney danger field of academic subjects. So you mentioned it, but let's now jump to jump bikes. You were the first and only marketing employee in, in that outfit as they transitioned into the now booming D2C space. Um, and D2C in you know, 2017 was really early days. That must have been exciting for an area that has absolutely been booming recent years. I mean, I, I don't know that there's a hotter sector of the business right now than that. Yeah, well, Jump was extremely interesting. It had been around for a number of years as a company called Social Bicycles. If anyone's in Portland, Nike sponsors the bike system there, and but it was actually Social Bicycles behind the scenes of all of it. And so that was an interesting transition because the, the company had realized that they had a product innovation and the business model was going to innovate as well. The product innovation was they had already invested in making an electric bicycle, an e-bike built for bike share. And so it'd be one of the first electric bike bike shares, which is super innovative because it lowers the barrier to entry for someone considering taking a bike from point A to point B versus a car. You know, it was more comparable to, oddly enough, getting in an Uber than it was getting a similar pedal bike. And so... Jump was an amazing experience because then also at the same time, you had the business model changing where cities were saying, we don't want to offer just one permit. And then you have a monopolistic player, just like City Bike here in New York. We want to have multiple permits and really allow competition. And so that led to, well, we need a consumer facing brand. We don't want to have anyone just come and sponsor our system, have that that kind of disconnect when you go from one city to another as well. And so, you know, that was very interesting to be in that place where that business model is changing. We've the business model is predicating you need to be a consumer facing brand and go direct to customer to get your rides. And then you have the product innovation as well. So that's why we we rebranded social bicycles to jump. We quickly partnered with Uber in San Francisco where we were showing the bikes in the app, but that was mainly just a BD deal that we had done, but it went well. And six months later, we joined Uber and started scaling insanely fast once we became part of them. And you referenced it, but that was uh, a different experience for you, it sounds like. Joining Uber. Yeah, I think um, joining Uber was an amazing experience. And, and that whole experience of what happened with Jump, I mean, we had just raised Series A money. We had just launched our first few cities. Six months later, we're getting acquired. A year later, Uber's IPOing, and Jump is a big part of the story. Of it's multimodal. It's not just a you know the Uber X like we know. There's more to Uber, and our bike was you know a big part of the IPO roadshow, and the scooter by that point as well. And then a few months after that, really coming to an abrupt end, and the whole business being divested off to a competitor at the at the time. So, you know, within kind of two years we experience what a lot of startups kind of see over a much longer time frame, but that's a great journey too, in and of itself. And then personally, I got to build a team of 40 marketers reporting into me and 
expanding to 35 cities across the globe. So, you know, now global experience, um, which is very different and eye-opening and just that, you know, I, that pressure that comes with scaling up a team in that pressure cooker, right? And under that time frame, and being very nimble because the hardware products difficult, permits by cities are difficult and, and unpredictable. And so marketing has to be extremely flexible as we react to kind of what the business is giving us. And that brings us, Rick, into the present day at Thimble. Tell us how you got there. Well, you know, I, I left Jump and I think what might be clear is I have no allegiance to any industry. I'm not like a career CPG person or a career auto person. And those people exist and I love you know, following their careers. Mine has really just been now the narrative, at least that makes sense to me now, is the first few years of my career were very formative at agency side, publisher, tech companies, et cetera. But now when I choose to apply it is really more of my control. And so when I joined Jump, I thought this was extremely, I like transportation and you have something very disruptive and I want to go apply myself there. Um, rather than do the same thing at a, at a competitor after th that was over, I decided, let me keep an eye out on what else exists. And so I met these two founders of Thimble, Jay and Eugene. And they just had something beautiful and brilliant. I've always had a passion point for small business owners. And I mean like the individual operator owner of a business, whether it's a restaurant owner or a handyman or a photographer. I've always thought that's, you know, a great kind of purpose for marketing to support and a product to support. And so what they were doing was innovating the small business insurance space. And so, you know, basically Thimble is the only company that can create small business, that can provide small business insurance for anything less than a year. And so normal small business insurance policy is an annual contract. And we could do it down to the hour. We could do it for a few days. We could do it for a week. Or we have a monthly product, basically a SaaS subscription product where every month it just renews. And that helps because then you can avoid upfront fees. You can avoid cancellation costs. I mean, think of Netflix and how you use Netflix and you know, that's what Thimble's created. So, you know, it's disrupting time, which I just thought was amazing. It's fought all the regulatory battles in its history to get to that product innovation and bring it to market. So we're now live in 49 states in DC. And then it's a pretty good national awareness. And then the other part of the distribution is it's all in an app or all on our website. So it's an e-commerce company. And I joke that, you know, while Thimble is B2B, we're, we're kind of lowercase B2B. These are just handyman photographers. They are the decision maker. And then we do it all through these e-commerce channels. And so from a marketing perspective, we use a lot of the strategy and tactics that any subscription box company would use, or you could be selling deodorant, um, you know, online in a modern brand packaging thing. And, and it's the same a marketer working on that could fit in what we do. And it's very exciting, I think, because D2C is just in a great place right now. And such a disruptive model. Talk about the decisions around going into insurance in particular and, and are there plans to extend that to other industries where it really serves the flexible interests of your target, the small and medium-sized businesses? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, ultimately our audience is small and medium-sized businesses and you could create a business around you could create products 
for them in many different ways outside of insurance. We're pretty high on the prize when it comes to insurance though. Business insurance is a very large market in the US alone, $150 billion. It's growing because there are new types of insurances and coverages available. For example, a growing part is cyber insurance where people like you and I who have to deal with data or an engineer who has to deal with private data on behalf of a client, they need coverage over those types of products. And that's just growing. That type of work is increasing. And so the market is growing and there's just a lot of room for innovation there. We're literally the only app in the app store that, that someone can buy business insurance in. So the fact that there's only one company in the U.S. today that can sell business insurance in an app, I think shows you how nascent this is. We're definitely creating other tools. We have um, a tool for property managers and event managers um, to manage all of their vendors and the compliance of their vendors. And it's a really exciting space, kind of tangential to the insurance itself. But you know that that's kind of our bread and butter, and we think there's a big opportunity. But who knows? In the future, the biggest companies in the world um, tend to to grow vertically and horizontally. But right now, we think vertical is the best approach. And talk about the size of the community that you serve. I think most people are under a misimpression about small, medium-sized business. It's actually the largest driver of the American economy, indeed the global economy, but you are playing to an awfully big market and one that is in fact growing. Yeah. And I think you'll see many enterprise B2B companies are growing by coming down, right? Growing by building self-serve tools aimed at SMB owners, et cetera. So there's many stats about how big the SMB market is. It is massive. But the thing I think is most interesting actually is something in the last basically on, under the you know under this world of covid that we live in in quarantine there's a there's a lot of conversation about the great resignation and people leaving their jobs either looking for new opportunities or just completely fed up with the opportunity that they had in their job and the most interesting stat that's kind of the the output of this is more businesses are being formed now than ever before and the rate of new business filings has gone up significantly in 20 and 2021 um, as well. And I think that's super exciting. So what you're seeing is 70% year over year increase in business formations. Individuals filing for a new business and asking the government for that tax ID is the, the best way. And it's, it's a number that the census publishes. And so any one of us can go and look at these um, stats. And then for us, what we're seeing is 40% of our customers have founded their business within the last 12 months. And so not only is it massive, but it's probably the most fastest growing. And so I think, you know, whether you're, you're uppercase B2B or lowercase B2B, like I think Thimble is to not be looking at the SMB market, you know, kind of zero to 10 employee market is a big miss. Talk about Rick and where you think the growth is for you. And you joined the company in the fall of 19, a few months before COVID, but most of your tenure has been during COVID. Your company's experienced tremendous growth. I assume to date, the growth is domestic. I guess my question was, are there plans outside the US? But talk about the experience you're having as an SVP, building a marketing organization and doing it you know, from your living room, so to speak. Yeah, there was a couple of ways to tackle that. I was in the office and, and with my coworkers for about six months in person in Soho, 
you know, before we kind of closed up shop in March of 2020. So luckily I got to know them pretty well. Um, we were about 20 people in that office when we decided to go remote and we are now 50 people. So we've grown under COVID quite considerably. And most of that, that 30 incremental, you know, new hires that we've had are way outside the New York area. And so we've really adapted. I think it's, it's great because we've gotten to build the company with this culture versus adapt a, a pretty, you know, structured, established culture into remote. Um, and in fact, many people are hunting for jobs that are remote. And so we become extremely appealing in that job market. It does have its challenges just to stay on remote for a second. I think, you know, depending on your age, stage, and, and lifestyle, it could be very difficult or, you know, living at home. I have two kids. That was difficult. But even if you don't have kids, you know, the office is a big part of your social life as well. And I think some people get to miss out on that. And also just new hires, right? Onboarding a new hire. It's tough to ask open-ended questions or just absorb everything when you're in a Zoom. You don't get to hear people chatting in the hallways or stop someone at the water cooler. So you really have to, as a manager, you have to make sure that the onboarding is maybe more in-depth or longer. Um, and as the new hire, you really have to make sure that you know you get that exposure and that you're asking questions and you're not and you're fearless. So I think remote has its challenges, and you know we're going to stay this way indefinitely as a company because we've really enjoyed being able to hire people coast to coast as a, as a business going into kind of what's what's next. So we're really just scratching the surface. We we mainly offer general liability insurance. We've launched commercial property insurance, you know, general liability insurance. I won't go into all the technicals, but it's a great product for a business owner. It's pretty much a prerequisite for every established business, every business that wants to be legitimate, even if it's a business of one. But as that business grows, it needs so many more things. So commercial auto, commercial property. And so we'll look into that expansion of insurance products to serve this business owner. If we have the best flexible options for that owner to get started, we're extremely excited by that. And that's a big part of our strategy. But we want to make sure that as they grow and they grow their business, Thimble is still there. Because our NPS score is through the roof. We have an NPS score of 78, higher than, way higher than the insurance industry and up there with icons like Apple and, and others, you know, in, in just a brand perspective as well. And so we're really proud of that. And so now we really have to think, okay, what's our secret sauce, which is underwriting, which is challenging how insurance products are structured and then delivering it through a very streamlined, slick experience online and in an app there's still a lot more to go. And for now, probably just in the US, just it's a it's a different landscape in every different country or in Europe, for example, how insurance looks and what you need. So we think there's just a lot more to go. Uh, you know, and, and insurance is an interesting space. I mean, the biggest brands of insurance, every sports event that you watch on TV, every stadium, you know, every, you know, big moment in culture, you'll often see big insurance brands next to it. And so there's a, there's a long path that we have yet to, to travel as a company. Well, it, it's a great story. And what Thimble is doing, truly disrupting the industry and serving an absolutely vital cog in the economy. And, you know, it says an awful lot that there's one player in your space in the app store and you're it. 
So uh, that is great. And it's been an absolute joy to talk to you, Rick. And thanks so much for doing this. Uh, Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Chaptering and other structural elements for this podcast are powered by Snackable AI. With the ability to unify all content in one place, have AI distill the best insights instantaneously, and share them seamlessly, businesses on Snackable create more relevant value for their audiences faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai.